listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wire World Pro Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the panel. Starting with Mr. Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. Hello, gentlemen. It's so nice to see you. Eight weeks in a row. I think that is so awesome. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's great and ridiculous all at the same time. And it's just so many emotions wrapped up in that one statement there, Nick. So true. Uh, so true. Next, we've got Mr. Brandon Burnside. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Good to see everybody. And followed by Mr. Scott Gershon. Hi. <laughs> Scott is speechless for a change. I'm a man of few words. <laughs> and finally, the Iron Man. This is Mr. Show number 205? 205. Mr. Rob here. Hello, everyone. Man, I just, is it 205 already? I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm losing like keep track of these things. I'm losing count at all. This is hilarious. Uh, uh, so, Rob, it's good to see you, brother. Good to see you, too. Good to see everybody. Um, and then joining us today uh, as a really special guest, um, this gentleman has been with Disney for over 25 years and recorded pretty much Anybody who's anybody in the character voices and uh, Mr. Randy Coppinger. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a big fan of the show, and uh, it's nice to see some familiar faces and join in the conversation tonight. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for joining us, and uh, we're going to spend some time because Randy has been doing some really cool things, uh, not only recording amazing voices, but he's been helping out um, some people in the, in the voiceover world and, and voiceover artists and, and getting people up and running. We'll, we'll visit with him and, and uh, find out exactly what he's been doing. But for we, before we do that, um, we got to do a couple things right off, right off the top. Number one, um, and I tease this, and so I'm going to start with this. Um, I uh, got a hold of Logic 10.5, Logic Pro X 10.5. And, um, and I did a little bit on the Facebook saying that I'd talk about it and, uh, uh, on the podcast. And so here's what I'm going to say on the podcast. Logic Pro X 10.5 is amazing. They, they do some phenomenal stuff. Like the way they handle the clips and the interface and the whole thing, it is truly a joy to work on and to write on. But let me just tell you this. They're all amazing. <laughs> like, like whether you're working on, on uh, uh, Ableton or whether you're Cubase or Reaper. I mean, software has gotten to the point where they're all amazing. So when you see these forums and one pe person is, you know, touting this or touting that and, and, you know, trying to put down this or trying to put down that, because I read some negative comments about logic and things like that. It's just ridiculous. Can we just all just save our energy and when updates come out, just go good for him and then just know that probably some version of that's going to hit whatever DAW you use. Or better yet, why don't you use more than one DAW? Because DAWs are getting so inexpensive. For 200 bucks, you have stuff that is so powerful and back in the day was so expensive. And when I say back in the day, I'm talking like 
just less than 10 years ago, you know, and, and it's just amazing. Like the new logic is, it looks good. It sounds great. And, you know, if you're into the logic world of, of editing and of how it works, then you're going to love it. If that's not your cake, then, then don't use it. But all I'm saying is, I mean, what? Op code. (laughs) The truth is all of these DAW platforms, I mean, most of them are over 20 years old now. They're mature at this point. You know, they've had plenty of time to get it right. And computers are, you know, so much faster than they were when these things came out. So I've had a couple of friends just recently, composers all, buy the new Mac, spending anywhere from 20 grand to 40 grand. And what's interesting, though, with a couple of them, and, and I know you're shaking here, but it's, it's a fascinating discussion. They all have four or five computers going. A lot of string libraries, they put it on and everything comes up. Their electric bill alone is over $1,000 a month because they have between the servers and they're always on. They don't shut it off. To take the time to take the load doesn't make sense. So now they can fit almost everything in one computer has all the RAM and they're getting RAMs that are sizes of hard drives. Now, all of a sudden, it's only one computer drawing, not four or five. And um, they're all keep showing me screen tests, how they keep putting more and more and more and they're getting more voices and they're doing more orchestras. So on one hand, I thought that's ridiculous for that price. On the other hand, how much does it cost to start making many, many, many computers to be able to have that. It's a very interesting conversation that I think is just starting to happen. Oh yeah, it's great. The whole revolution with technology and software and efficiency. And, and uh, I, I just think it's just ridiculous for us to get into the, the software wars of mine's better than yours, yours is better than yeah. I think they're all great. And to be perfectly honest, I find myself, I'm very software agnostic. I don't care. I, I, I really don't. I know them all. I know Cubase. I know Live. I know Reaper because it's, I'm a geek that way. And I just, I have to learn all these things. I mean, the audio now cast, the original theme was written on sonar. Like I wrote that just because I wanted to do something on sonar. And sometimes I'll do that. And the fact is I love the new logic, but I started writing last night. And what did I do? I picked up my, my go-to, which is, um, Ableton and I started writing on live because I just I like working that way and actually I worked that way because Brandon back at trailer park kind of helped me with a few things to get into it but I could just as easily start there and go Brandon, to what are you writing with logic I'm writing with Ableton live yeah so you do everything so not just loops but you know all the MIDI all the different timing changes and all of that all in Ableton yeah, you know, Ableton's got the two sides. There's the the launch mode, which is more like live performance based, where you got the loops and everything. And then they've got, you know, your regular linear workflow. Um, so you can do it that way. That's the way I use it. And not only that, but Brandon showed me stuff in Ableton that at the time, it was the only thing that could do it to the audio. Like you couldn't get a, an easier way to do a chatter than the way that Brandon had showed me that they were doing it over in Ableton. So all this to say is, you know, I know, you know, I said I was going to talk about logic, but you know what? There's a lot of great um, YouTube videos out there and a lot of great things if you really want to d- dig into the minutia. But as far as my opinion, it's a great update. It's well worth it. Even if you've never, ever even thought about logic, it's 200 bucks. If you can afford it, I would pick it up. Because the fact of the matter is, is all these different software platforms, 
they can all inspire you in different ways by different tools. And I find I'm more inspired by a tool than I am by the, by the universe. You know, I, I can be inspired by something that this program does or something that that program does or something that this program does. So I just think it's, it's just, you know what, if you're a creative, it's just one more tool in your bag that you should, you should get. Anyway, I used, uh, uh, can I jump in real quick? Mike? Absolutely. Yeah. So I used logic for years and I really, really liked it. Um, and then my friend, Billy Martin, who works with Randy and I at Disney turned me on to Cubase, which I had originally tried using in the, you know, aughts and it was terrible, but it had become really, really great. As Rob was saying, you know, about, you know, these things are 20 years old. Um, and for the, for a while I thought, going to Cubase made sense because Apple seemed to be focused just on phones, right? And I couldn't imagine that they were going to continue putting serious development into something that's as vertical as a digital audio workstation. But as it turns out, they did. And as you mentioned, they've been continuing to, to keep it going and thriving, which I think is wonderful. Um, the other thing I wanted to say very briefly to Scott was uh, you can get a... PC with an AMD Threadripper, you know, CPU core and 96 gigs of RAM for between four and five grand. Um, Absolutely. No, and if you build it yourself, you can do it for more like three. Um, yeah, it's, it's not even the price. I think what's interesting is that we went from everybody having, you know, several cheese graters, a couple of trash cans and a bunch of laptops. Yeah. So it's kind of irrelevant about, it's more about the type of computers that are now having as much RAM as a hard drive and, and being able to fit full orchestras on. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's a, a whole new concept, but not concept, but it's, it's a whole new maturity. Uh, Cause I'm interested, like we were talking about VO. Now all of a sudden, you know, we've got three computers, actually four computers on a dubbing stage, dialogue, music and effects and a recorder. Well, now all of a sudden, that one system might be able to be a mixer's dream to have so much more DSP, so much stuff in RAM that it may take, whether it's an Apple or an IBM is irrelevant, mm -hmm. but now being able to have the speeds, the RAM, the cores, now all of a sudden, it's going to take us to another level because I think we've been where we've been for quite some time and I don't think we've progressed all that far. Um, but now, how do we do something, you know, right now, it's, the look is small. It's like not having a thousand pieces of gear, but now it's just having one thing that does so much. And then, but you still have six monitors. I think, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there, Scott, when you said, let's face it. The fact of the matter is, is Apple finally updated their pro line. It was so dormant for so many years. I, I, once they updated it, once they started going, I just think it opened it opened avenues and areas for people that are like, oh my gosh, I forgot what power felt like. I forgot what power felt like. I'll give you a great, great example. When I got my new MacBook Pro, I, I got the i9 with 32 gigs of RAM in it. And oh my gosh, to be able to edit 4K video on my laptop and not have to wait and for it to just cruise, it was just like, it just opened up whole new worlds. Anyway. That's all, you know, software is really great. Logic Pro X, the new stuff they're doing with samples. I'm not going to get into it, but man, you should look at it. It's so great. The, it reminds me of back in the day when you had, um, 
what was it structure that was that was the sampler for uh, pro tools where you could just grab a sample stick it in there and you could really super fast lay out anything that you wanted anyhow it's it's along those lines and it's super powerful so I and, and I'll, I'll say one thing because i know both uh you and and rob and all that um in SoundMinder, they created a new synth called radium it's going to whole look a whole lot like a synclavier Wow. You have four partials, but now they just open the six. And every way you work in it, you put, you just take it from SoundMinder, you just highlight it, drag it in, play it. You put plugins in. It has its own thing. That's and genius. You, and then you can record it back into SoundMinder for library. That you know what that that makes so much sense. Oh yeah. You wonder why they didn't do that before. I mean, I, talk I talk I, about I, a sound designer's dream right there, Justin. And all of a sudden, for music too, just as the programmer, just thought he's jonesing on this. He's running with it. He's got this. It's almost becoming a workstation unto itself. That's fantastic. Brad, were you going to say something, Brandon, before we move Yeah, on? So I use SoundMinder's major competitor, uh, Basshead. Yeah. And they can, yeah, you can bring in, I don't, I don't know if uh, what all you can do in SoundMinder, but you can, uh, you can bring in any VST, any whatever, and process it and record it right back in there. So similar thing. Right, but what's interesting though is now, sure, and that's you know, somebody's had that for a long time, and I'm really good friends with the guys at Basehead. Um, what I like it is that I used to be a sampler guy with the waveframe and the single gear, and and I could play it on my drum pads, my keyboards. Now all of a sudden, I can I can use real life faders. So instead of just doing a plugin or putting it in the Pro Tools that doesn't have destructive, or having to go to Reaper. Now, all of a sudden, there's this really simple thing. It also does random starts, random loops, loop forward, loop back. Now, all of a sudden, it's all of the really cool sampler stuff that we did. And it's free. If you have SoundMiner, it doesn't cost you anything more. And you, right put, there, yeah. and you can put the plugins in, any VST plugin the same. And then when you do it, you put in the Pro Tools. Well, and you know what's amazing? Or I mean, the, you're, the window or Cubase, or, yeah. you remember, but I mean, do you remember structure? How easy it was just to, just to yeah. like, you literally highlight that region, you throw it in there and, and you instantly, it's like instantly loaded into contact. So it was, it was pretty awesome, but way more powerful. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, we're going to move on uh, because we got a lot to get to today. Um, but yeah, there's some really great stuff and man, I can't wait to to get SoundMiner and to check that out because that's that's really cool. So um, last week we had stories of <laughs> last minute disasters, and and this week um, I'm going to start with with some different stories, and and I want you guys to tell me the first time and fill in the blank. All right, Jeez. and I'm and I and I'm telling you this, and I'm going to start it because of was our our guest um, Randy, who um, is a big fan of of the person I'm going to be talking about in this story. So back in the day, and this was, I would say, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, um, I was working for a, a sound company called Of Sound Mine. And the owner of the company was the type of person who back then, and even nowadays, you never say no to work, whether you can do it or not, right? Hey, can you? Yes. Can you? Yes, yes, yes. And you have all these, these young people working for it you know, for him. And it was literally like 
like battlefield promotions. Like you would get to be something because they needed somebody to do that. Hey, we need a, a sound effect spotter. You ever done that? No. Well, here, here you go. Boom, boom, boom. We need this. Boom, boom, boom. Well, I was a dialogue editor for like two weeks. And then the person who was the dialogue supervisor um, quit. And so the next in line was me. So I became the dialogue supervisor. Meanwhile, we get this big film um, for uh, HBO. Uh, it was the rebound, The Legend of Earl Manigault. And it was Eric LaSalle's first directorial debut, working with this uh, editor named Gary Carr, who was super picky. And I'm the dialogue supervisor. And it's basketball games, all right? So just think about all the crowds that we have to have for basketball games. So... This is like looping and this is like ADR. And I literally had done just a few ADR sessions as a dialogue editor and now I had to do it. So the first time I did a, a, an ADR session was over at Warner Brothers. And I, I think I've told the story. I was so nervous that you have to hold up only one ear because they only have one headphone because you're listening to the actor on the other side. I was so nervous because you, you sit at this desk and I didn't even know what the desk did. I'm like, wait, you sit at the desk? And, you, and, and I was doing this. I was shaking because there was Eric LaSalle from ER right there that literally like the week before I saw him on TV and now he's right there and I'm working with him. And then uh, Gary, who was this super just picky editor was there. And I, I felt like I was a, well, I was a fraud, but I didn't want them to find out. Anyhow, to make a long story short, I survived. And then we're going to Disney. Why? Because we're going to shoot the loop group. I didn't even know what a loop group was at that time. So we're going to go shoot the loop group. And at that time, the big loop group in town was Barbara Harris. You know, I don't know if you guys remember, but Barbara Harris, she was like, she did, her groups did all the big things. And so obviously, Eric Lassell, he hired the best, which was Barbara Harris. So here comes this loop group coming in, all these people, we're going to do all these crowds. And I'm the dialogue supervisor, so I'm in charge of all the ADR. And I remember sitting there and I was scared. And we're shooting to 24 tracks. So this is the first time I'm even on a stage to shoot a loop group. And they have a giant screen that looked like a, like a, uh, a theater. I was nervous. So I sat there and I remember talking to Doc. And he was the most steady, just, just, and I knew he knew that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and he was just so calm and he was so cool. And he actually gave me confidence. And the best thing about it, I'll never forget, is when you record back then, you were recording the 24 track. So when you're recording your loops, right, it might be a whole two minute of, of just walla or, you know, a minute of walla. And you have to stagger your tracks because the scenes kind of overlap and you have to stagger your takes. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to punch into a line if you're doing the walla. You don't want to punch in and record over anything. And so I later found out that's one of your jobs is to try to figure out <laughs> which track to put this on. So you would say, okay, let's roll again on five or let's, okay, let's roll again on three. I didn't even know the lingo. So he even helped me with that, right? But I'll never forget Doc had my back because I didn't know about any of that stuff. So I would just say like, oh, wait, that's great. Let's go again on five. And he goes, um, did you mean six? Oh yeah, that's what I meant, six. And he was just the coolest guy ever. He never, ever called me out. He never said anything negative. And after the session, I literally, as he was taking it down, I was there for another half hour just talking to him about microphones, about what he's done. But 
I'll never like, there's certain people I've never worked with them since, but there's certain people that just stay with you. And my first session working on a real movie with real people, doc like really helped make that whole thing worthwhile. And we ended up getting nominated for a golden reel for that, that movie. And a lot of it was because Doc was there basically holding my hand. Now, after two weeks on the stage, you know, you're a veteran. Oh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> but, man, he was the, like, I, I cannot say enough wonderful things about Doc. And whenever you, like, here's the thing. Look at, like, Marvel films. If you see anything that comes through Disney, look at the credits and look for the recordist ADR, and you'll see nine times out of ten, you'll see Doc's name. Because he's literally... He's done it all. I just saw it the other night on, uh, on a Marvel movie. So it's like, he, he's a great. And that was the first time I ever worked on a, <laughs> on a real stage, you know. And Doc's just a great guy. Right, Randy? I mean, you can... You can... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love Doc. When I first started at the company, so many people told me, hey, whenever you have spare time, go over and talk to Doc Kane and watch how he works. And I was like he doesn't know me. Why is he going to give me the time of day? And he was so gracious. And, you know, I would ask him my dumb newbie questions. And, you know, my favorite was I noticed he's got a compressor um, on his acquisition chain, but I would watch him ride the faders. And I would hear some of the mixers, Terry Porter back in the day, and some of those folks would talk about how great his stuff sounds. And I finally just got up the nerve and I said, why do you ride the fader like that? You know, because I knew that was part of his sound, but I couldn't figure out, like, how did he ever develop that technique? He said, uh, well, before I worked here, I worked at another company and I was doing dialogue and they gave me a console uh, on like the second or third stage, not the main stage. And it was so noisy that the only way I could get a good print to mag was if I would ride the fader up on the quiet parts. <laughs> and so this whole technique that was sort of defines him as one of the best guys for recording dialogue, ADR or otherwise, uh, was all a fluke because somebody gave him some crappy gear, <laughs> which was a great, you know, like take something and run with it. And every time I see Doc, um, you know, it warms my heart, but also I just remember how he sort of, like you said, he pulls people up. He brings people alongside him. I never feel any sense of uh, competition or animosity, and you just want to be. He's got like a gravity of generosity. He just draws people to him. He, he is so good that way. And I'll never forget, we had lunch together, and it was like we were old friends, like just like that. It was, it was incredible. So anyway, um, anybody have any other stories of the first time? The first time anybody want to chime in? The first time they did anything? The first time Rob worked with Stevie Wonder or the first time? <laughs> that was so long ago, I can barely remember. Uh, as I said on the last podcast, 35 years and one week. Uh, <laughs> No, if I had to go back to a first time, actually, it's uh, it's one of my biggest first times. I've had a bunch of them, but this is one of the biggest ones. And Scott was actually there for it, I think. And that was the first time I got to hear a 100-piece symphony orchestra play my music. Oh. Yes, I was. <laughs> and that was back when I was trailer boy and doing zillions of trailers. Uh, the The first really big orchestral, uh, the first film I did orchestral trailers for was Godzilla. This is going back 22 years. Not 23 that long years. ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, which I just watched, by the way, literally last week at the end of last week. After the, the podcast, I watched, I watched Godzilla, the old Godzilla. Really? I and thought of you, though. 
it's a terrible film. But anyway, but it led hey. to a good experience. Oh, a bad movie. But anyway, I worked on it for 13 months and uh, uh, it. Uh, wait, wait, no, the, you do the story, and I'm going to do the second part of your story, but go on. Okay. So, my story, though, is for the first trailer, which we actually did before the film was even shot. So, it was all new footage. It was kids uh, walking through the National Museum of uh, History in New York, and then Godzilla ends up stepping on the dinosaur, and that's when Size Does Matter was born. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a pretty impactful trailer for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it's also, and I don't know if Scott's going to talk about this, but it also was the loudest trailer in movies. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. <laughs> we'll talk about that after. But when it was time to do the uh, the music, they gave us an amazing budget, and they it was the biggest marketing campaign in the history of films at the time. It was about a sixty million dollar ad campaign. But uh, I uh, no money for the film, but the ads. So oh no, it was an expensive film too, but. Uh, so I wrote the music for it and got the gig through a series of other people sort of screwing up and me getting a chance and sort of flying with it. But we ended up recording that first trailer. It was the first time I'd ever heard a real orchestra play my music. And we recorded it uh, on the MGM scoring stage at uh, Sony in Culver City. Uh, so I just remember that day walking in and seeing, first of all, all the stands set up with the music with my name on it as composer. So that was freaking me out. And then the orchestra starts to come in and it's a massive orchestra in a massive room. And as they're sitting down, I'm realizing, okay, this is where the Wizard of Oz was recorded. This is where Schindler's List was recorded and Star Wars and all the MGM musicals, like basically everything you can imagine. And I'm standing right where Judy Garland stood to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, like just a little bit of history. And I was scared to death, but I also remember making a mental note to not forget this moment. Like, even if I get to do this a bunch more times, and I, I, I was lucky, I did get to do this quite a few times um, for Sony and then for Fox also. But that first time, and then hearing the orchestra actually starting up playing something that I had sketched out on synths. I mean, we knew exactly what the That's notes so were going to be. But when you actually hear a 100-piece orchestra with just an army of percussion, these were not subtle trailers. This was the opposite of subtle. And when I heard that, I mean, it was, that was truly a first time life changer. That's fantastic. I could only imagine. Brandon, how about you? Or actually, wait, Scott, did you want to say anything? Did I was just going to say with that story, that was the A side is the B side. So we get Rob's score. It's amazing. And we start mixing it. And, uh, you know, we understand trailers are going to be big, ballsy, I had done the sound design, Rob had done the music, and, you know, we, we knew kind of the map that we wanted to do. So that was really great. And, and it was actually was one of the first projects we'd actually creatively both worked on together. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do this, great, then I'm going to do this. So at that point, it all worked together because we worked together, and he understood what I was going to do, and vice versa. Okay. I thought I did. Let's say. <laughs> I thought I understood what you were going to do. I will say a valuable lesson was learned on this trailer, which is don't write anything cool while Godzilla is screaming because no one's ever going to yes. hear it. But anyway, go ahead. Things that go boom and things that go roar, take a, take a pause. Um, so we go in there, and this is all before the metering uh, stuff. Like, you know, when we did Pacific Rim, everything was like, no, no, it's, it's going to hit the meters, the task meter. Okay, before all that, it's got to be loud. So we knew we, you know, we also had seat shakers we did in Vegas and we had all this really great concepts. Okay. So they wanted it to be basic big. All right. Well, we have to be at 85 dB. We're in theater standards. 
So they're listening to it. They go, not big enough. So we said, okay, we'll compress it. We'll just, we'll really hit it hard. We'll do the heavy metal version. We're going, we'll keep pushing. We keep pushing, we keep pushing. Okay, so this was at a studio at the time called Vine Street. Now, Vine Street used to be the old rider facility. And the stages are deep within many, many cement walls. Okay. It was getting so loud. The mixers looked at me and said, we're distorting at this point. There's nowhere to go. And they're saying, it's got to be bigger. Now, it just happened that the producer had uh, stuffed nose and stuffed ears. So that made everything very interesting. So at that point, we, we had to tell them, we're, it's just never going to get that loud. It's impossible. What do we do? She, uh, the, you know, the producer didn't want to hear it. I want it louder. So having a duty to the, to the trailer in the theater, we, we won't distort it. So what we did was we did something which you never do, and we actually turned the volume of the stage up. So we recorded as loud as we can go. We turned it up to like 90 dB from 85, brought a 5 dB up. It was so loud, you could hear it outside on Vine Street through all the stages, through all the hallways, through all the airlock doors. You could hear this thing so loud outside. I, I will, and it was hilarious at the time, but I will tell you one little addendum to the story, which is also hilarious. So they were mixing this trailer and the music was loud and the sound effects were loud and everything was loud. And yes, they had cranked up the room and the producer kept saying, no, it has to be bigger. It has to be louder. It has to be louder. What the producer didn't realize is that they were slowly going deaf because they'd been listening loud so much. So at one point I remember one of the mixers saying, could we just take a break? Like my eyebrows are burning off. This is so loud. Like can we just take a half hour? So we took a half hour and I remember everybody went outside, just sort of hung out. We came back into the room and the producer said, okay, let's play it back again. And they hit play. And I just remember the producer grabbing their ears, screaming at how loud it was, saying, no, 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 it's too loud. Oh, my God. And it was too loud. I mean, it was bone-shatteringly loud. But it was just because everybody had gone deaf. So that's when it we had a lesson. So the trick was take a break. <laughs> Uh, what a great story. What a great one-two punch from, uh, from Scott and Rob. Hey, Brandon, how about you? Do you have any first time? Yeah, to continue with trailer stuff. Um, so my, the first, well, I had had, you know, sound design and stuff licensed in trailers before this, but the first sort of big trailerized remix, as we call it, that I did was uh, for Terminator Salvation. And it was a remix of Nine Inch Nails, uh, The Day the World Went Away. And Mike, Mike helped me with the mix a little bit. I remember that. That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. And, and um, yeah, the first time uh, seeing that, I, I forget which movie it aired before, but I went, I bought a ticket, whatever it was, and went just to watch the trailer. So that, it was like, you know, those stories you hear of some, you know, classic rock band hearing their song on the radio for the first time. So that's what it felt like. It's like, yeah, there's my, my thing. Dude, that, <laughs> uh, let me just tell you, that was one of my favorite remixes that I've ever like been a part of you did a great job on that one and all the sound effects and everything was just that was that was awesome that was awesome i couldn't have done it without you mike you hey, made no. that mix mix rock uh, <laughs> I, I used to the mix but the the raw stuff was just your stuff was just amazing it was so cool um and trent, trent reznor might have helped a little bit yeah 
yeah, you know, we. That's the hack. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it's, man. It's, it's not like we had some good stuff to work with or anything. <laughs> One of these days, he's gonna have to learn how to use a synthesizer or something. I don't know, no, man. but you know what? I will. I gotta. I gotta put this in there though. I gotta give Brandon props because. One of the things, especially in Brandon's type of work that you have to do is sometimes you've got to take other artists' stuff and you got to create stuff that will fold into it, that'll mix into it, that'll, that'll sound like it's coming off from the same stuff, you know? And that's not, that's not easy, you know? Yeah, it's, if you gotta, you, you've got to match a Johnny Cash song, you got to go Trent Reznor, you, gotta, you have to just have the flexibility to be able to do that kind of stuff. And Brandon is... Brandon's super flexible. <laughs> and, and could I do one other one other tiny first? It's a quick sure. one. It, invol sure. it involves Scott. So for um, Pacific Rim, one of my little pieces of sound design for the trailer yep. got made it into the movie itself, which was yep. super awesome. Yep. So got got to sort of work with Scott and yeah, Guillermo no, del Toro. Was, I heard so. this great sound, <laughs> and I was like, "How'd you do that?" And I really. Oh yeah, I remember Scott. Scott gave me a call. I was like, "What'd you do?" <laughs> and I look, a good sound's a good sound, and my ego is not such like. Yes, I had to have made that sound myself, and you know, and I just heard it, and I just went, "Oh, that's that." And I asked him, "Can I use this?" Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. And he showed me here's what I did. I'm like, cool. It's, you know what? I still use part of that technique because it's sort of a tremulation thing that you did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've done so much tremulation in my career, everything from Flubber and everything else. Um, there was something really cool about that little plug-in chain that yeah, it was, day, I just really like it. It was, I, I it was either one of two things. Yeah, it was either, uh, I think I, in that one, I was using guitar rig. That's what it was. And, I didn't know and if you wanted me to say that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not a secret or anything. Yeah, it's, uh, it's and it wasn't a tremulator. Guitar rig. Yeah, it wasn't a tremulator. What was it? It was well, it, the. Uh, it, it, it added a. Oh, ring! It was the ring modulator. It was the ring it was modulator. The ring mod, but it added yeah. a tremulation that you yep. could put on yep. a pitch wheel, and then be able to. So a lot of times when I have creatures going, you know, I'll go. What a great trick! Yeah, it does something nice that's different than like a tremulator. It does. Yeah. Any tremulation, absolutely. Look at that. Yep, that's just. Cool that, that, you know what? That's just. Synergy right there. <laughs> hey, Nick, how about you? First time? Do you have any good first time stories? Oh, of course. Um, this is a first time story that I really want to share for the listeners who really want to make it into this industry and haven't done so yet. Um, just to be able to tell you what, tell you what that's like. So, um, you know, I really discovered that music was my thing when I was in college. I was 18 years old and I was like, oh God, I have to just be playing music. This is what I need to do. And I spent, uh, you know, my entire 20s just studying and studying and studying and getting a bachelor's degree in electronic music and working on little projects for anyone that would pay me anything or anyone that wouldn't pay me anything and then getting a master's degree in electronic music and focusing so intently and giving all of my 20s to this thing that was I was so deeply passionate for that here I am 35 years later just as deeply passionate about it as I was then um and uh, I don't remember if I've ever told this story on the, on the on the show before but um just as I was finishing up graduate school 
um, friends of mine in Marin County, where I'm from, uh, said that LucasArts Entertainment was looking for a sound designer for their new video game because they didn't have enough people. And so I emailed them or wrote them a letter. I don't even remember what. Got, the, got an audition, went in. The audition was they sat me down in a closet with a you know sound idea 6000 series on cd and a quick time movie from you know the from the the game and they said you got half an hour bye and walked out the door and you know slammed the door and because of the fact that i had you know assiduously taught myself pro tools when i was in graduate school not knowing that it would become such an important part of my career later on uh, i was able to hit the ground running and you know long story short I, I passed the audition, I got the gig, um, and I got to then work for the next six months on, you know, my first real grown-up project, which was the video game Grim Fandango. Grim Fandango, I knew you were going to say it. That's yeah. one, one of my favorite it's video games. It's so good. It's so good. The writing is so funny, and the voiceover is so good. And so the, the, the first was, you know, and long story short, hooray, I have worked continuously since that moment doing audio production in, you know, every different way you can imagine. So um, I got there, hooray. But the, the point was there was this amazing moment in which I realized that I was working with these other creative people. I was being celebrated for my creativity. They were delighted that I wanted to go out to Sears Point Raceway and record the sound of the cars, you know, the race cars out there for the game and all of this stuff. And so, of course, I did. And um, there was just this moment of, of becoming, of realizing that you were there, that you were, you know, that you were in there. And I'm sure you guys have all had that same experience, but it was great. And, you know, what I, what I really want to say to the people who haven't made it yet you just have to keep loving it and you have to just be passionate and just pound your head against the doors over and over again. And you'll make it in some way and in some part of this industry, you'll make it. So, you know, that's, that's my feel good story for the day. All right. Well, we're going to, Oh, go ahead. Add something if you wouldn't mind really quick. Yes. I was going to do My story wasn't actually Rob's story. I had a different story. Can I do a quick story? If you do it really quick, Okay, really, really quick. <laughs> Rob started the story. Okay, so when I first started, since I'm a man of few words, um, uh, I was working on a, uh, a movie called Born on the Fourth of July. I was mm. brand new. I was working on an ADAP computer, uh, Atari computer using ADAP software. And um, my mentor, um, who, you know, just was basically helped me grow up, his thing was, okay, I did, the, I did pretty much almost all the sound effects on my own to Born in the Fourth. Um, so we had to do the trailer. And they said we would like Scott there just to see. I didn't do the trailer, but just to be there. And here I am. I'm 25, 26. And I'm just young. And a man of few words. So Wiley said, or my mentor, oh. you can go there, but you need to shut up. Don't say anything. Don't talk. Just be there. And if they need help, help them. Otherwise, you know, okay. So I go to the mix and I'm not a very much a star person. I, I you know, I, they're interesting people, but I just, it's not my thing. So we go in there. They're all getting ready. I hear the mix, you know, I hear the trailer, whatever. So in walks Tom Cruise with his whole entourage of people. 
And I'm like, oh, okay. And, and you could see there's a, oh, Tom, yes, Tom, 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 Tom. Okay, so they go in. So me and another editor, uh, he was doing dialogue. I walked out and said, great, you know, let them do the thing if they need me. We're outside. And we're over at Sony Studios in the upper stage. So we're hanging out there, and, and Tom walks out. Now, Tom reminded me a lot like my neighbor, so for some reason I felt comfortable. So we're talking for 45 minutes. We're talking about life and friends and all this kinds of stuff and just having a good old time. And I'm like, great, you know, I'm talking to Tom Cruise. How cool is this? So then he ends it with, uh, so I really love what you did for the movie. I'm such a fan of yours. I love the sound design you did. So you did the trailer, right? And I said, no. And he went, I'm confused. You did the movie. Yes, I did. Then why did you do the trailer? I said, I wasn't asked to. Tom then proceeded to walk into the room, quietly talk to a whole bunch of suits, like a dozen. They're all looking at me really angry. And they're really pissed off. So I'm sitting there like, you got to remember, I'm just new in this business. I'm like, Oh, this isn't good. So then he, so Tom goes over and goes, hey, my buddy Scott there, he didn't cut the trailer. So what's what got, here's what's going to happen. We're constantly in the mix. I want to give all this stuff to Scott. I want him to cut the trailer, and then we'll come back and we'll do it. <laughs> At this point, I have Tinkle coming down me because I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, I totally screwed up. I was told to shut up and I just totally just, you know, so there's these people now looking at me very angry. The mixer who uh, was Mike Minkler is laughing. <laughs> I'm sitting there. My knees are clacking together. So they all leave. They're giving me the look. And, uh, and then, you know, I have to call my mentor and tell him that I didn't shut up and I, you know, all this happened. <laughs> So, and that, that was that was the that first was time Scott movie. made enemies. <laughs> uh, all right, that's a great story. Um, so, Randy, yes, you're going to tell us a story, and then we're going to continue on talking to you about some other stuff. But t tell tell us one of your first time stories. Sure. Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to uh, piggyback on some earlier stories. Uh, I got to attend an M and E. Uh, it was my first time to go. We got to go uh, out of town for it. I'm not going to name any names, who was mixing or where or any of that. Um, but uh, this was the M&E for foreign dubbing. So they're doing the whole thing without dialogue. So we go to this stage, and uh, it's a really big place, and I'm kind of overwhelmed, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is awesome. And uh, there's some food in the back, and uh, the guys that I'm there with, who are the senior uh, folks who are supposed to be there. I'm just piggybacking. Um, they go to the back of the room and, and eat the snacks. And I'm like, I'm going to sit right behind the mixer. I'm just going to, I'm going to soak this up. I'm going to get the full surround feeling from this. And they both kind of look at me with a smile on their face and uh, they just come back from break and they hit play and my ears were pinned to the back wall. And I went, oh, that's why they're sitting in the back. So that was my first Emmy. Wow, was that loud. Um, the first time I was asked to be a voice director, I was as green as anybody or anything, anytime. I was pretty comfortable at that point with uh, the tech stuff. 
uh, and my uh, my team lobbed me a softball. They gave me somebody who I couldn't possibly go wrong with, um, a living legend, Jim Cummings. Mm. And we were working on a character. He was, you know, he's created so many characters, but he's also a fabulous sound alike. And uh, we were reusing some clips of some early uh, Winnie the Pooh stuff, and he is the voice of Tigger. And so we were replacing the original Paul Winchell uh, with Jim Cummings for this clip. And um, so some of the words changed, but a lot of it was in there. And, you know, it's, it's pretty loose flap, but we're, we're doing ADR here. So he keeps giving this read, and I keep thinking, that's not what the line is. And I had the audacity to say, hey, Jim, would you mind if we listen back to what Paul did? Just because I, in my head, I, I hear it differently. And, of course, Jim was right. And, um, you know, I put my tail between my legs and walk out ashamed of a softball session. And I was so afraid to voice direct for years after that because I had screwed up something so simple. Uh, but eventually I got back up on that horse. And, uh, you know, now Nick will have me do voice direction whenever we need it. And I'm comfortable with it. But, wow, did I blow that one. <laughs> we, all make those mis- we all make those mistakes, Randy. And as I, I believe you voice directed something today. Am I, if I'm not <laughs> yeah, I did, actually, yeah. So, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, Randy, you're so comfortable that you actually fired Jim one time on a session. No, no. <laughs> I do remember, though, once, I do remember we were working on a project and they couldn't quite figure out what they wanted. And I said, well, let's just hire Jim Cummings for it. And they were like, I don't know if he can. And I said, trust me, if anybody can pull it off, Jim can. And we got in the session. I remember the producer, like, picking his jaw up going, oh, my word, this is going to be a cakewalk. So, you know, I vindicated myself years later. (laughs) That's You know what? Oh, my gosh. You just gave me a great idea for the next podcast for stories. Like, awkward awkward session stories i mean yeah yeah that's gonna be one that's gonna be one (laughs) yeah war stories are so fun you know people failing i think is so telling particularly if you're you know if you're comfortable enough to tell your failures then uh you know you can withstand a lot of heat uh have you listened to the podcast? <laughs> we're so we're so full of failures. Yeah, I felt very comfortable sharing. Thank you. Hey, so, Randy, it's so great to have you on. You, you have a bunch of war stories, but one thing I want to talk to you about is is uh, um, Nick was telling us that you were helping out a lot of voiceover people right now, and you're helping them with their rigs at that at their state. You know, now that we have to stay at home and and. You know, talk to us about some of that stuff. What are you doing and, and how are you helping these people and where are you guiding them to? Well, it was interesting. I think early on, a lot of folks, a lot of actors in L.A., so many, um, seemed to already have rigs. They were all set up. But a lot of what they were using it for, and this varied, of course, from actor to actor, but they were like really great perf- um, uh, audition spaces, Um, so they might have a USB mic rather than, um, you know, something a little more, uh, burly. Uh, they might, uh, they might have a booth. They might not. Um, a lot of people had a booth just to, you know, kind of keep the dishwasher and the neighbor's cockatoo out of the recording. But, um, you know, everybody sort of comes at it from where they are. Like all of a sudden, this is the way forward. This is the way we're going to be able to work period. Um, once all the quarantine went in and the studio shut down. So, um, so, you know, and the other thing is people can send me a gear list, but I don't know what they're doing with it. You know, you point your yeah. microphone backwards, it might sound terrible. 
So I just started basing my work on how it sounded. And I would say, here, here is a real short little blurb. Record this and send it back to me, and then let's talk about it. And, um, and I found that to be the most revealing. Sometimes it was gear. Sometimes it was technique. Sometimes it would be a combination of both. Um, you know, I, my, my passion uh, in, in pro audio is microphones. And so I always want to know what you got, where you hanging it, send me pictures, tell me the positions of the switches, you know, like all oh, the nitty gritty for that. Um, uh, but you know, you start having all the other parts of the chain, uh, person's interface, um, the ga you know, gain structure. We had one gal that I was working with who was primarily a singer and her setup worked great for music. Um, but it just had a lot of self noise and we just had to strip away a bunch of stuff and sort of go, Oh, the, the fader on the mixer is down at minus 20. Well, okay. Um, that explains why the preamp has to be up so loud on, you know, so, so just trying to walk through people and, and it's the thing I always sort of talk about, whether you're in audio or you interface with it is trying to put together the things that you are hearing with the things that you're doing and connect those, um, so that things will sound better and you know we can always find some improvement it's just a matter of how much and you know the dramatic stories a, a friend of mine who referred some folks to me said uh, hey do you have any dramatic before and afters I said oh yeah check this out and he was like wow that's night and day but the person was making you know some pretty simple mistakes because they were an actor not a recording engineer and they don't want to be recording engineers most of them and that's great sure. so I just been sort of jumping in and helping them and and you know Microphone selection is sort of where you get to really, um, you know, the question is, what's the right microphone for voiceover? And I say, well, you know, that depends on what you book, what kind of work you do, uh, your voice, what you're trying to bring out in your voice. Do you have a problem with the mic you already have? Those kinds of questions. But it is incredibly satisfying, particularly when the before is pretty rough, um, to get people to a place where they're doing professional sounding work. And, uh, you know, as we are starting to bring stuff back, um, I get such good feedback. Um, I'm really happy that we can, we can sort of do that. And, and, you know, since I have so many friends who also happen to be actors, uh, to pitch in and get people up to speed and make a difference for them. So we're all working. Those of us who are directing, those of us who are casting, those of us who are recording, those of us who are editing. Um, there's a real sense of satisfaction because that's kind of the, the front line of working from home. Randy, if, if you had to pick five microphones and a handful of mic pre-use, what, you know, if you had to say, what are the five that you think you would circle around most of the time? You know, people are getting really good results with, um, for example, the TLM-103. I've never met a Neumann I didn't like. Um, I'm a big fan of, of 87s. I mean, if I could pick anything, I'd pick a 67, but who can afford one of those, right? Right. So we're trying to get something in that market. I mean, we do have folks recording from home. We had one today. I wasn't on the session, but he had an 87 in his booth at home. Kudos, man. No wonder you sound awesome. Well done. I also noticed there was a lot of rumble. And I said, oh, here's a guy who knows not to use the high pass filter on an 87. What you? Right? I hear a lot of 416s. I think they're great. I think for trailer work, they're especially great. I always tell people you got to be careful. If you have a 416, you don't have to get rid of it. But man, it's like a laser pointed at you. And any actor who doesn't know how to stay on and just gyroscope their head with the on axis, you'll hear all that comb filtering. But, you know, as a first mic, a 416 is kind of rough. But for folks who know what they're doing and who are used to it, you know, who know that 416, 
they can zero in on and hit it. That is a great sounding mic. And it, you know, the rise in frequency on it is almost opposite the X curve coming through the perf. There's a reason why that mic has survived all these years. Um, I love an SM7. And with the presence filter on, tons of people who have no idea that it is not a, um, not a condenser mic. But that does put... Uh, uh, heavier tax on your on your interface. You've got to have a good interface for that, or a cloud lifter, or something similar that gives you a little bit more clean boost. That's the trick. Mic um, pre wise, what do you like? Well, this has been really interesting because what I would pick for me and what I would pick for someone else who is not necessarily interested in being an actor, those are two different things. If they're coming in, if you're over at any studio, you can get forget about stay at home. But when you're recording somebody for either live or for animation or games, what the, what do you what do you what are you drawn to? Uh, my first choice is usually the Martech MSS10. I just think that thing is so useful and clean and powerful. Um, I love riding the level like Doc, and so that little uh, gain on the side there is is great for that. Um, with the Neumanns, particularly the 87, um, Stephen Paul himself told me. An 87 likes to see a transformer. I think that the Focusrite stuff is the right flavor for transformer. Um, the Focusrite blue line and red line both do a great job. Um, in fact, I think uh, Doc is using red line on his stage last yeah. time I checked. Um, uh, the Millennia stuff is fantastic um, for warmth and uh, and... You know, without being super colored, but just having that big, fat transformer sound... Uh, that one's hard to beat. We used to do, uh, when Wayne Allwine was alive, he did the voice mm. of Mickey Mouse for over 35 years. Um, the UA preamp was so great on his voice. It just had some right-in-your-chest punch. And so when he would, you know, oh, boy, and just hit that stuff that soared in the, in the higher range, the 610 just landed it every time. Um, I, that is maybe not necessarily a Desert Island one, but if you're getting a second preamp, that UA610, and then, uh, you know, you remember when you and I worked together for a brief period of time, I'm a huge fan of the Hardy M1 with the continuously variable gain, yep. with the uh, high gain position, and that might be my my um, my Desert Island uh, preamp is is the Hardy. Um, he, he does such a great job with things. It's so clean. It's so pure. Not... Not that it has zero color, but it's just like you can record anything with that, and it's the perfect range for dialogue stuff. I'm a huge fan, for sure. Randy, let me ask you, now that we got the, the technical and your microphones, um, for, the, for the people that are out there that maybe don't, let's say they have like their USB mic, and that's yeah, all yeah. they can ever have. You know, we, we talked to the high end. Like, what are some of the... the just the practical things maybe in the delivery or the way that's set up that, that give me, you know, give me three pieces of advice that you would tell them, you know, to help them out with their recordings. Yeah. Um, one of the, the easiest things, I mean, I love free. Okay. Sure. Much as we love talking about gear and juicy preamps and all of that stuff. Um, I love free. And so on my blog, I have talked about what stuff you can do in your space for free to make it sound better hang stuff on the walls, put pillows in the corner, put blankets in the corner, just take advantage of everything you have for free that doesn't show up on your Zoom camera. You know, the fact that it's ghetto, all they see is the shot on, that's on your video conference, whatever you're using. So just throw stuff in there and, and 
you know, whether it's breaking up the sound or absorbing it, there's a whole bunch you can do for free. I like, if you have a window, put up a house plant. You know what house plants do? They're amazing. First of all, they give you a vibe, and that's probably the most important part of it. But second of all, they have diffusion. That big round pot, usually it's round, right? Scatter some of the sound. The soil has diffusion to it, and it brings life into your space. And it kind of, you know, not in a major way, but come on, there's some oxygen there. I mean, it's a good thing. And so if you have a window in your recording space, do that. I love furniture blankets and, and everything that's free. So that'd be the first thing I would say. A mic position is a big deal. I've had some huge improvements where someone has a great microphone. I get a recording back and it just sounds wrong. It's sibilant or it's plosive or it sounds like I can hear the top of their mouth like they're on some FM easy listening station and I realize sure enough the mic is here. And I always ask people to start, not with a hat on obviously, start between the forehead and the nose pointing down at the mouth. You get out of the way of the plosives, the sibilance goes down, and there's room underneath for your copy. It just cleans everything up. So I would say that would be my second recommendation. And then the third one I kind of alluded to already, which is make that connection between what you change and how it sounds. That's, you know what, that is some of the best wisdom that I've heard. Cause that seriously, there's, there's so many, it's, it's all about the little things. And, um, and one thing I got to, circle back on and and just give you kudos for is the fact that you talked about the TLM 103 and then you talked about the 416 because you get a lot of people like go to the 416 and you know because they see it and they see it in this and they see it and and you know um pictures and things like that and and what you said is so right it's like the 416 sounds good in certain environments in certain situations but given between the two you're better off spending your money on a 103 if you're going to do like a lot of voiceover, you're going to do a lot of vocal work because the 416, like you said, it's such a, you know, you just got to really know how to, how to, how to do it. And, and I can honestly say that when, you know, when I was doing a ton of sessions, I, I would like, I can't remember when I would do, I'd only do a 416 if they were doing a, a trailer match. So when the actor came in and you had to match um, you had to do a piece of dialogue to match the uh, the movie. Um, then I would go to a 416 because odds are they probably had one on stage that they originally recorded them on. But that's that's well, such smart words of wisdom with the 416. Well, and you know, if you want that cinematic sound, and we'll circle all the way back to our comments about uh, Doc Kane because we were talking about 416s. He'll use it as the far mic or as a match mic. He said, you know what, Randy, if you want to get the sound of a 416 for less and not deal with the interference tube, go with an MKH-50. And I was like, huh, MKH-50, same company, interesting. So I bought one and I hung it and we started testing it and I went, oh no, what have I done? Did I hear him wrong? This doesn't sound anything like a 416. And then I flipped the high pass and bang, there it was. Immediately sounded exactly like a 416, but with no interference tube, you move off just a little bit, much more forgiving, gets that great cinema sound. And I think they're just a little bit cheaper than a 416. Um, certainly better in, in close, tight environments. If someone's working in a closet and they want that trailer sound, I mean, come on. Dunlop and Tain made an entire career of 416s, right? Oh, yeah. So the MKH-50, which is a same pattern, it's a supercardioid, hypercardioid-style microphone, flip that switch, and you are instantly in a cinematic recording environment. And again, so, use it at a little bit of a distance. Come in from on high like a boom operator would. You know, don't sit right across from that thing or you're going to blow it up with a P-pop. Um, but a great choice, um, you know, not a cheap mic, 
but a whole lot easier to use than a shotgun in terms of the comb filtering you get off axis. No, that's so true. And I'll tell you the other thing too about, about uh, 416, we're going with the tail on 103, is it robs you of, of some of your tonal qualities because the 416 tends to sound like a 416, right? Oh, yeah. And, and whereas if you get a, a larger diaphragm microphone, you can get a little bit more of your own character in there without going, without losing stuff. You know, anyway, yeah, um, let me give one more shout out to a, to a slightly more expensive mic, but but a mid ranger um, during uh, uh, post World War Two, East and West Germany, there were two manufacturing plants. One was Neumann and the other was Gefell. There we go. Yeah. Those guys are still in business today. They're still making mics. And some people say that the Microtech Gefell um, with that capsule in it sounds more like the 6787. Um, sort of vintage sound that we we know and love uh, than an 87 AI. I mean, I'm not going to argue either way because I love them both. They're great mics. Um, but but I think it's important pointing the MT-71, which is the cardioid only, is a great sounding microphone. It's not quite an 87. You're not going to fool me with it. You might fool some other people with it. But I will say this. It is a fantastic all-purpose mic if you're a singer and an actor beautiful, sounds awesome on acoustic guitar, lots of other uses. It's a lollipop looking microphone. Um, and it was um, Corey Burton who got me hip to the mic. Um, what was the name of that studio? Became Metropolis, Screen Sound, Sound, I forget the name of it, but they had like a dozen of those things and everybody called them the poor man's 87. I love that microphone and I will tell you for children, and for a lot of higher female voices, and even sometimes altos, an 87 can sound nasal, it can sound chesty. We all know to take a little scoop at about 275, 300 to sort of to sort of pull that out. Even just a half a dB sometimes does it. It's not there in the Gefell, and it's a very affordable mic. It's like, I think Street is 1200, 1300. And I love recommending that mic for an actor who wants to really invest in a mic they're going to be happy to own. I got you. If I could, real quick. Yeah. So obviously that that you've done a lot of stuff with uh, voiceover, voice acting, to animation, and and games. So when you're dealing, like I've dealt with a lot with, I worked with Doc a lot, and and actually Tommy. The reason why I say those two. Oh yeah. The the both of those guys are they've taken the craft to a whole another form. So the thing a lot of times in ADR, where we're not necessarily trying to get a great sound, but we're trying to match production. What are your thoughts on that front where you've got a guy who's used to shotguns and radio mics and now your job is to blend it so you can tell the difference between production and ADR? What was that film where they, um, they were in the Coast Guard? I can't remember the name of it. Perfect Storm? No. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so there's a shot where um, our hero is hanging out the side with the winch and he's got a helmet on and they're taking dialogue from the uh, Coast Guard uh, microphone that's on those helmets. And those things don't sound good, but guess what? That's, that's the sound that's in there, that's SOT. And so what are you gonna do? And they have to ADR it and they're having the celebrity come in to do the ADR. And I said, oh wow, Doc, what did you do? Cause he always told me, find out what they use for production and match it. If they use a 416, Use it. Even if you're tempted to use oh, the MKH-50, don't. Use exactly whatever they use. They use a LAV, 
go to the loft. They use both, record both, put it on two tracks at the same time so that the, the mixer on the stage has the exact same sonic imprint as what they were doing on the set and find out as much as you can about what they were doing on the set. He said they got special permission from the Coast Guard and he walks over to the closet and he pulls out a helmet that says U.S. Coast Guard on it and he said wiring this thing into the desk was the biggest pain in the butt you can imagine, but we got it. That is fantastic. What Randy, a, I what wanted to, sorry, sorry, Randy, I wanted to say we've talked so much about mics and mic preamps. I'd like it if you'd share with the audience our A mic and our preamp that we use in our VO recording studio at Disney Publishing. Yeah, it's the Cafel MT-71. I mean, I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's into a, a Focusrite ISA, what is it, a Ford? 110. One, yeah, yeah, that's the front end is the 110. That's fantastic. Hey, I want to give, uh, piggybacking on what Scott said about matching ADR, if you're a small studio out there and you have to do ADR, one investment that I would recommend is to get the Sankin cos 11 uh lav mic because sometimes like randy was was talking about it's you're not, you're not even trying to match a 416 you're trying to match a lav because sometimes it's just a, it's a wireless and and that's one of the most popular uh independent and pro um mics out there you'll see a lot of the Sankin cos 11s and you can't buy them all but that's definitely a good place because you'd be amazed how you're trying to match some dialogue you, you put a Sankin in and you can get you know hardwired you, you don't have to go with a wireless pack or anything like that and sometimes it it'll just pop and you're like oh okay and and i put that in my arsenal and it was it was literally changing you know it it, it made it so much easier because i would run that i'd run a, a large diaphragm and i'd run a 416 because you know you got the tracks to do it you might as well do it all and that just just having those options just makes it so much easier when you get on stage to figure out like okay which one is going to match the best so i just recommend that and they're not that expensive they're like 250 i'm looking it up right now 289 dollars. so if, if you do a lot of adr and you're struggling with some of that stuff that you know don't always go with the microphone sometimes it's it's the lab like randy was talking about randy we're gonna to have to have you come back because we have some things that we got to get in. this is i mean seriously i can totally geek out on microphones and i know scott can geek out on microphones like you know it's it's i love microphones i'm such a huge fan i love like Chinese microphones and just Russian microphones. Like remember back in the day when Guitar Center used to sell those little $50 microphones where you had to change the capsules on them? The Octava. And, yeah, I tell, I've got four of them. <laughs> well, you beat me by one. I've got three. <laughs> but, but they're great little mics. They're not consistent. Like out of the four, they don't, they don't sound the same at all, but they're just great little microphones. But, um, but anyhow, it was such a, this is so awesome. We're going to have you back, Randy, because we're going we're gonna to talk some more microphones and, and um, some other gear stuff. So it's, it's great. And I think it's really great that you're helping people out there. And, um, and just the fact that you take the time and, and it's all part of the whole spirit of everything, you know, is, is, you know, we're all going through this weird time together. So the fact that you're out there helping people and, and, and are willing to do that is, is pretty amazing. Hey, before we go, we're going to switch gear because speaking of gear, we got some gear that, that uh, we got to show. And um, I'm going to start with, with Rob. Uh, Rob, 
has a piece of gear that he wants to uh, show. And uh, I can't wait because I don't even know what it is. Yeah, no one knows what it is. I figured it's uh, good to do a little memory lane segment because like a lot of people, you know, I have these things piled up and they're never going to get used again. So they may as well at least uh, get their moment in the sun. But so this, I don't know how many of you will recognize this. This was an absolute go-to piece of gear that every studio had in any music studio anyway. And it was super popular for remixes. And I think we've talked about it on the podcast a little bit. Oh my gosh, I think I know what it is. So I'm going to hold it up. First one who recognizes it. Apex, sorry. No. Well, I'll show you from the back. <laughs> from the back, it's very simple. Not much to it. Is it a Russian dragon? That's what I was going to say, Russian dragon. A Russian dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Russian dragon. This was a legendary piece of gear that every studio had. And for anybody who's not familiar with it, it was really basic. It had two inputs on the back, channel one and channel two. And all it did was compare, if you had like a kick drum or a snare or something and you're doing remixes, this is way before you had tempo matching and workstations and all that. If those two signals, like if you compare two kick drums from two different drum machines or something, it would just let you know with relationship, the second one to the first, was it Russian or was it Dragon? <laughs> Was it a little bit ahead or a little bit behind? And so it is actually one of the best-named pieces of gear in history, the Russian Dragon. But uh, this is the legendary piece of gear that every remixer used to use uh, to do remixes. And I used this thing for hundreds, if not thousands, of remixes over the years. It was really a critical uh, piece of studio gear. The other thing about this that was funny was when I finally got my own studio, I had used this thing in lots of other studios all over the world, actually. And when it was finally time for me to get my own, like I'm going to start doing remixes in my own studio, I finally went and bought one of these things. And I just remember opening the box and I'd only ever seen it in a rack before. So I thought it was this big, complicated piece of gear. It's like an inch deep. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just opening the box and thinking, this can't be the whole thing. Like, what's in it? But the truth is, there's not much in it. That's uh, uh, a, a classic piece of gear for you guys. That's Fantastic! That is that is fantastic. Ever one, Mike, as a drum guy, and oh yeah, I mean because back then you, like you said, the sync was such a huge thing, and and even if you're just off a little millisecond, you could start getting into phase problems. You can get flams and stuff like yeah. that. So really, the only way to tell if you were on the beat was Russian Dragon, and and it was just. It was so simple and genius all at the same time. And, I, and, it's, and it's from a company called Genius Electronics, spelled J-E-A-N-I-U-S. And I assume, Randy, you used one because you're the one who... Uh, yeah, my first gig was uh, as, as the guy who answered the phone, stripped the floors and made the coffee, uh, was at a music studio. And I fell in love with the thing. Uh, one of the senior engineers had one. And I remember thinking, wow, it's really thin. It runs off a wall wart. Yeah, runs yeah. Off which I'm sure is in one of 10,000 piles. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but you know what's amazing, though, is that's one of the pieces of gear that we'll never see again. Because, like, as soon as they got sync nailed, it, it, it became obsolete overnight. It really, really... I mean, we used to use this 
I mean, in my, it was actually Michael Jackson stuff, not Stevie Wonder stuff. But we used to use this when we would have two analog tape machines yeah. that we were syncing up and trying to get drums that were on opposing pieces of tape, you know, opposing reels of tape to line up. And we'd use the Russian Dragon to line them up uh, to, because you'd adjust in the synchronizer. You could play with the phase of the two sure. machines. Those days are so gone and they're not coming <laughs> back and they're not even there. Thank God, though. I mean, come on. When you had to align two tapes or you had to – I was working with uh, – I think it was Teddy Riley way back in the day and having all these rhythm sources and you're trying to sync everything up. And it, it was – it was you would spend so much time getting it perfect. And then even then, you're, you're hoping that it stays perfect. You know, you're hoping like some crazy little voltage thing doesn't happen and all of a sudden uh, a machine is just – a Tad slower or something like that. It's, Kids these days don't realize how easy they. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, um, used to work at Narda Michael Walden's recording studio up in in Marin. Um, you know, long time long time producer, and the way that they would check their sync would be they would have a twenty four track, and they would very slowly rock the reels back and forth. And the kick drum hit had to land on the VU meter at the same time that the bass did on its thing. And if it didn't, then it was out of sync and it, was, it wasn't as perfect as they wanted it to be. You had to be a pioneer back then. But you know what, though? I, I will say that as crazy and as hard as it was to, to get those machines talking, the fact that they could do it, it was an all analog process and they could, they could lock up two totally variable machines and get them to be like frame perfect was it's pretty amazing i mean if you think about it that's just pretty amazing that they that they got that everything the motor control everything is just it was pretty amazing to, actually we used to use stevie as a synchronizer because his his hearing was so good that we would put to a different signal left and right he was basically a human russian dragon <laughs> He could always tell us, even like down to phase almost, yeah. which was ahead and which was behind. Which, you know what, that brings up a good point because when you're doing stuff like that, sometimes you just lose perspective. Like, wait, is it behind? Is it ahead? Like, like nuts. it's just crazy. All right, that's great. Each week I'm going to try to find something from our meaningful past <laughs> like that. Not yeah. just old crap, but stuff that was actually important. No. 30 years ago, that was pretty cool to have. Uh, just promise me uh, that you'll you'll show the MIDI monitor sometime. <laughs> yeah, that may make an appearance. You, thing, but yeah. uh, you know why? Because I remember Goodman's music was was selling them, them out for oh. for forty nine dollars, and I'd always wanted one, but I thought eh, I'm not going to get it. And I literally I I kick myself every single time. I think it's been thirty years, Mike. You need to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't. As a keyboard, as a keyboard tech, that was one of the things. Like I got the little Studio Master MIDI analyzer. Like when they had MIDI analyzers, that was life changing for me. Especially working on giant rigs that I used to work on. It was really great. Hey, That's so right out of frame, so it may make an appearance. In. <laughs> so moving on, uh, Mr. Nick Peck last week showed. Uh, Showed his little modular there, and we asked him to uh, see if he could get it up and running, and you did. Oh, I did. So uh, last, you know, speaking of analog universe, um, we talked a little bit last week. I showed this one of my one of my three modular synthesizers. This one is my Serge modular, of which 
Um, I built two of the sections myself. I designed the sides of it and I put the whole thing together and I need to do a lot more debugging on the, in, on the inside parts because though it was built by somebody in Australia and sent to me, um, there are mistakes and problems that I'm gonna have to get in there and fix. Um, but be all that as it may, uh, you said, I really wanna hear what that thing sounds like. So I thought I would just quickly um, go in and sort of show you guys the joy of the random abstract exploration that is the, the, the Serge modular thing. This is like the avant-garde machine. That's, that's really its deal. So I'm gonna uh, just play around with it a little bit and I'll talk a little bit about what I'm doing because Mike said that if I don't, then the compressor kicks in and you guys can't hear the music. We were experimenting with it a little bit before we started. So uh, I'm just gonna start and you guys can really hear um, what, the, what this thing can do, what this thing can do. So this is using an analog oscillator that is going through a wave shaper. And this being uh, pulsed by a low frequency oscillator. And you can really change the timbre of it quite a bit by using Wave shaper. This is a sine wave coming out and being, and the, the wave shaper is changing quite a bit. It's got this lovely rubbery kind of sound. Let's bring in something else. There we go. There are some more pulses here. There are things called dual universal slope generators, which just can be programmed to change the rise and fall of an envelope. And additional wave multipliers that can change the timbre of the thing quite a bit. Hey, Nick, can you hear me? Yes. All right, is that coming off of one oscillator? Uh, is that coming, a single source? There are three oscillators. Three oscillators? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And the fun thing about it is just how it's, it's, it's such an exploration machine, you know? It's not about trying to create something that does something specific. It's about trying to go for a feeling, and that's why I love analog synthesizers so much. <laughs> because they have just such a... So I shouldn't be asking if that was the verse or the chorus. Yeah, no, this is the bridge. <laughs> this, is the, this is the bridge here. My favorite part of the song. So, that's it's, it's the Serge modular. I just love this thing so much. <laughs> Bravo! Yeah, that that's awesome, Nick. That's the kind of thing you just route into your computer, hit record, and play with for hours, and then resample totally. that later. You bet. The, the, that awesome. is exactly what you do. That is it. It's just it's a it's an exploration machine. It's not something about 
it's not like a, a MIDI synthesizer with a sequencer where yeah. you're saying, I'm going to make this and this is going to be the chord progression and this is going to be that. This is a journey in which you're just going and exploring, which is what I love about modular synthesizers so much is that you just don't know where you're going to get to at the end. It's just a, it's just a, this, it's, I'm so passionate about them because they're so cool because you just don't know. It's not you telling the machine what to do. It's a dance. Yeah. Of you and the machine working together. And it's, you know what, let's face it, it's a great foundation builder. Like you can get some bizarre, like really cool, like attitude out of that thing. And like Brandon was saying, man, you bring it in, you sample it, and then you totally. tweak the bejeebies in, the, in the, uh, the digital world. And it's just a perfect marriage of you just get this raw analog bass that you really couldn't get any other way like you can't some of those sounds you have to start with with the oscillators and then do all that really fun stuff with it that ends up with this and then you take that and you and you run with it so it's that's really cool which, which is why trent Reznor has a huge modular in his studio and junkie xl has a huge modular oh, yeah. in his studio and you know people who are sonic explorers have these things and just love them yeah. but it's a it's a rabbit hole man you can just go so deep into it it's ridiculous <laughs> Well, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to have to wrap this up because this has been an amazing podcast, but it's also been really long. Um, just so you guys know out there, if you're watching on, uh, on Insta TV uh, you're, or you're watching on Facebook, the video of this, um, we can only put an hour up on Insta, Insta TV. So I edit the video. So if you want to catch the whole show, you should really listen to the uh, the. Um, the audio nowcast, the audio portion, because you'll you'll hear the whole thing. So there's, I know for a fact, I'm gonna have to cut almost a half an hour out of this show. So there's some really great stuff that we're gonna be losing. So I would I'm recommend sure. listen <laughs> listening to the uh, to the the audio version, and uh, and you can catch the whole thing. But I gotta thank Randy. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. And you know what? We're gonna bring you back, brother. You you gotta come back because. There's so much more gear we got to talk about. There's so many more microphones we get, we got to talk about and and technique. And so I just want to want to um, thank you and and we're gonna invite you back. Um, Thanks anybody, for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Anybody have anything that they're working on that they can they can kind of talk about? Anybody want to say anything really quick before we wrap up? Um, we finished Mrs. America. Woo! Yay! Congratulations. Yay. Um, Anybody? Uh, I have something. I went on a, I did a shoot in the new, the new Hollywood, actually not Hollywood because I'm not in Hollywood, but um, I haven't done a shoot in, you know, a couple months. And uh, it was really interesting because in the new, the new way you shoot is uh, I basically was by myself. I was the DP, the director, the crew, <laughs> the sound guy and, uh, and everything is in a, compact tight little setup and i set up everything you bring the talent in they're over there i'm here they do their thing they leave and then you take it all down and uh, i just think that's that's just going to be the new normal for a, for a lot of stuff you know you got to social distance and uh and you know do what you you got to do anybody else have anything they want to mention here's a here's a random bizarre one i've been playing a lot of accordion because it's about <laughs> When people can't have birthday parties and their friends want to put together videos to send to them and put together, you know, a collection of videos. If you play happy birthday on the accordion, you don't have to think of anything else to do. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, wait. All the people I'm doing it for are going to start communicating and realizing I only have one trick, but that's my trick. 
Okay, you do realize now you're going to have to bring the accordion next week. We got to hear some accordion. That that like rush on accordion. Yeah, you you basically made it impossible for you not to bring your accordion on next week's podcast. Uh, contact my people when we go. Somebody's birthday. Uh, that's a that's a hard no if I ever heard one. Heard play? Have you never heard me play before? No, I've never heard you play. I've known you twenty some odd years, and I've never heard you play the accord the accordion. Okay, well, we'll see what the future holds. <laughs> okay, my birthday's in June. Just so you know, I, I know we're close together. So uh, I'm hoping to get at the very least an accordion. Happy birthday. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, if you're out there and you have any comments or questions for us, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Um, and you know what? We're in week eight, and it looks like we're going to go into week nine and week 10. And I just want to remind everybody, be careful out there. Um, it's really serious still. Um, I had two family members back east. They just got diagnosed, you know, with, with COVID. So, you know, don't, don't let your guard up, you know, just, just be diligent and just be careful. And, uh, you know, let's all get through this together. So for myself and all the guys here, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week. We do it for you, Joanne. Thanks for listening to the audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and wire world pro audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbutier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time.